The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. We begin with the September sell-off intensifying with the Dow entering bear market territory. But a Tuesday turnaround is taking shape right now. The futures are higher. And Chicago Fed President Charles Evans saying, The central bank is not ready just yet to take the gas off the rate hike pedal. His new comments to CNBC this morning and turning our attention overseas. The Bank of England bowing to hike rates even further amid a plunge in the pound. We're live in London with just how aggressive that central bank may get. And potentially fresh headaches for airline travelers as airports across the U.S. They grapple with a new wave of strikes by workers and Hurricane Ian's impact already being felt before making landfall here in the U.S. as the storm forces forces oil producers in the Gulf to shutter their operations. It is Tuesday, September the 27th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good Tuesday morning. I'm Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off the hour with a check on the markets and your money right now. Stock futures right now green across the board. We're seeing the Dow looking like it could open up more than 200 points at the open. The S&P and the Nasdaq both about a percent higher. We also want to check the bond market yields right now. Of course, we're still seeing that inverted yield curve right now. We're seeing the two-year above the 10-year right now at 4.264, the 10-year at 3.833. Also important to note, the five-year also above 4%. In the oil market, crude currently at about the levels that we saw yesterday. We're seeing WTI still below 80 bucks a barrel at 78 bucks a barrel up this morning. Brent crude just above 80 bucks, 85 bucks a barrel. Excuse me. We saw a dip below 85 bucks a barrel briefly yesterday and a look at the cryptos. Bitcoin right now with the action that we're seeing here. Bitcoin still actually just above 20,000, moving a little bit higher in the pre-market, up almost 5 percent. Ether and XRP also both up. Both of these up more than 40 percent over the last month. All right, let's go worldwide right now. Jeff Cutmore, he's in our London studio with a look at the overseas trading action. Jeff? Yeah, very good morning to you, Frank. Let's update you on where we are here then with a couple of hours under our belt for European equities. As you can see, we have something of a bounce back here in early trade after what's been obviously a very volatile start to the week. The DAX in Germany and the CAC in France are higher In terms of sectors, it's autos, technology and travel stocks that are among the biggest gainer. The FTSE MIB, though, is a notable laggard here, trading down around a half a percent. We've also got a little bit of weakness now on the FTSE 100. That has turned around from being in positive territory. In terms of currency markets, the pound has managed to recover some ground, but it still remains near a record low against the dollar. Both the UK Treasury and the Bank of England have attempted to calm the volatility. The central bank saying they are closely monitoring financial markets and, quote, will not hesitate to adjust interest rates if required here. And you can see the euro just on the front foot at the moment against the greenback. Well, Asian stocks closing broadly higher. 
pulled into the green by the strength of Chinese equities, which have been supported by the further easing of COVID measures in places including Hong Kong and Macau. Back to you. All right, Jeff, thank you for that overseas action. We appreciate it. All right, let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories. Our Pippa Stevens is here with those. Good morning, Pippa. Hey, good morning, Frank. Well, Hurricane Ian's impact is already being felt in the energy space. BP and Chevron announcing they have shut in production at offshore oil platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. The Category 2 storm, which is expected to intensify in the coming days, is the first this year to disrupt oil and gas production in the Gulf. Meanwhile, Occidental Petroleum and Hess say they are implementing measures for facilities in the region and airports across the U.S. grappling with a wave of protests by workers, cashiers, baristas, bartenders and lounge attendants at San Francisco International Airport launching an open ended strike yesterday over staffing levels and wages and flight attendants at United and Southwest Airlines are expected to demonstrate at 21 airports around the U.S., as well as in London today, to draw attention to workplace problems made worse by understaffing. While neither of the strikes are expected to disrupt air travel this week, they're the latest signs of upheaval in the nation's transportation sector. And Chicago Fed President Charles Evans defending the central bank's recent string of rate hikes. Speaking with our colleagues over in Europe, Evans was pressed on whether the central bank needs to carry out another 75 or even full basis point rate hike. I think we've been very clear in our communications, and I'm a strong proponent of our summary of economic projections and the fact that we indicate where we think the path of the funds rate ought to go to justify our projections. The exact timing of that path to me is less important than the fact that we continue to get to the point where we think we ought to be. So whether or not you know, it's a larger increase at the next meeting or continued increases to get there before very long. I, you know, if you just look at everybody's projections, we pretty much all got the same spot by March. And Frank Evans added that the main concern for the Fed is staying on top of tackling inflation. Back to you. All right, Pippa, thank you very much. We'll see you later on in the show. All right, let's stay on the Fed with a look at the Delivering Alpha Investor Survey ahead of tomorrow's Delivering Alpha event. Polling the nation's leading institutional investors, top strategists, and our own CNBC contributors. On the Fed and whether the central bank is moving too fast in raising rates, more than half say they are comfortable with the current pace. A third say it's time to slow down, while 13% say they'd like the Fed to actually be more aggressive. Let's get another view on this with Annika Treon, chief economist at Van Schlag Kempen. Annika, thanks for being here. Hi, Frank. Good morning. So, Annika, I know right now a lot of us are talking about rising rates. Obviously, that's causing some issues for a lot of companies, at least here in the U.S. Um, you're also watching the rates, uh, excuse me, the bond market. And you're saying while a lot of people are going there for yield and maybe as a place to go for safety, you're actually concerned about the liquidity and the volatility of the bond market. Can you explain? Well, absolutely. I mean, essentially, the bond market is the anchor pricing for virtually everything. And what you see is you see signals of the bond market starting to get unhinged. You talk about liquidity. You know, we've all seen what happened last week. The liquidity levels in the bond markets were as low as they were in the peak of the pandemic. And that's when the Fed had to come in to rescue. You know, the other thing you're seeing, and obviously the QT from the Fed is a big driver of the illiquidity there. But another factor in the bond market that you see that is worrisome is an apparent sort of decoupling between what you're seeing in yield action 
and what you're seeing in the real economy. For example, ISMs retreating further and further, whilst yields still keep going up. For example, inflation expectations really starting to come down, whilst yields still keep going up. And if that's the reference points for all pricing, if that's the basis that market participants have been talking about, items like TINA, that's a, that, that can indeed be a, a worrisome picture, Frank. Yeah, there is, no, um, there is no alternative other than stocks, or there's no alternative stocks, Tina. Um, that trade's obviously broken down a bit. Um, one other thing a lot of people have been talking about here on CNBC as well is that the two-year with a 4% yield is more attractive, but you're also looking at uh, company debt, and you're saying company debt's actually starting to compete with the equities of the companies themselves. Absolutely. I mean, it's incredible. So this is a world we're simply not used to because it's been such a long time. It's almost 2008 levels of of, of corporate debt yields. And we're talking about large cap, you know, net cash balance sheet stocks. Well, companies which are offering, you know, five year yields north of three percent. You compare that to, for example, the dividend yield of the S&P. And, you know, your point, there is no alternative, which became Trina. There really is no alternative. (laughs) The new dialogue is um, R.I.P. Tina or R.I.P. Trina. Those maths just don't work anymore. And that's why equities have had such a tough time. All right. One last thing before we let you go. We've been talking a lot about the strong dollar at trading in parity with the sterling and the euro and how it could impact U.S. company earnings. How's it impacting eurozone company earnings in the near term? And what do you think that means for the long term? Well, it's certainly very beneficial for the short term. So what you see, I mean, in general, earnings expectations have held up in a remarkably resilient way. You're starting to see downward earnings revisions in the U.S. equities space, which is not surprising at all. That's not happening within European equities simply because, as you say, Frank, the strong dollar has been helpful. But that is temporary in nature. And obviously, you know, the year on year comparisons will only get tougher. So that's not something that, that, you know, one can fundamentally rely on longer term. All right, Anna Catran, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate the insight. Thanks. All right, when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, much more on Hurricane Ian as residents in Florida brace for the first major storm of this season, the very latest on the potential damage on deck. Plus, two key pieces of data for the housing market on deck as the sector grapples with the impact of rising rates, whether that red-hot run may finally start to cool off. And later on, your morning RBI and the stocks quietly notching wins amid the continued selling. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
All right, welcome back to the developing story around Hurricane Ian churning the waters off the Gulf of Mexico. Officials in Florida declaring a state of emergency ahead of that storm's arrival, potentially making landfall as a Category 4 storm. Let's get the very latest on the storm's path and just how bad it could be with meteorologist Michelle Grossman. Michelle? Hi there. Great to see you. And we are concerned about this storm. We're looking at a very strong Category 3 storm. It made its first landfall about 40 minutes ago in the western portions of Cuba. We're looking at storm surge impacts, hurricane force winds, heavy, heavy rainfall, 20 inches of rain in some spots in central Florida. So let's look at the latest because that just did come in. We're looking at 125 mile per in- per hour winds. We only need 130 to become a Category 4 storm, so we're certainly expecting that later on today. It's moving north at 12 miles per hour. That's pretty good speed. It's going to slow down to a walking pace as it enters the Gulf of Mexico. Right now, it is pounding Cuba with really heavy rainfall. Could see up to 16 inches in some spots. Storms, storm surge, that is a wall of water. It's salt water that moves on land. And we're also looking at hurricane force winds. So we saw that first landfall. We're going to see a second landfall somewhere in the state of Florida. I'll show you that track in just a minute. But now 19 million people at risk, a tropical alert, whether it's a hurricane warning, a hurricane watch, tropical storm warning, or a tropical storm watch. That is in the yellow. The hurricane watch warning is in the red. That includes portions of the western parts of western uh, Texas, uh, Florida, excuse me, and then also parts of the western portions of Cuba. So as we go throughout time here, category four storm, That would be later on tonight into tomorrow morning. We're going to watch that very closely. It's pretty close to becoming a Category 4 storm. Now, look what happens as we go throughout time here. It slows down. It slows down to a walking pace. So see these lines as they get a little bit further. That is telling us it's taking a little more time to get through the Gulf. So by Thursday morning, this is where we expect that landfall, sometime early Thursday morning. And this has changed since the 5 o'clock advisory. Thought it would slow down. We thought it could even become a Category 1 storm, but now a Category 3 storm. We're looking at the potential for really strong storm surge up to 10 feet in some spots and hurricane force winds. We could see up to 20 inches of rain in some spots as well. Back to you. Wow. Winds at 125 miles per hour as a Category 3. Uh, It's hard to even imagine. I know. This storm is being called a historic one. Why historic? Mm -hmm. I know it's obviously the first of this hurricane season, but why so historic? Yeah, so that's one point. Second point is the western portions of Florida has not seen a hurricane in five years. And specifically Tampa, where we're seeing that landfall possibly, they have not seen a hurricane in a century. So this is, you know, we expect Florida to be prepared for hurricanes, but this spot in Florida has not seen that. Also storm surge, we have Tampa Bay, we get waters in there. It's ten. It's hard to get them out. So we're going to see 10-foot uh, walls of salt water moving on shore, and that's going to cause, cause catastrophic uh, problems as we go throughout time. Wow, 10-foot foot high waters yeah. of wall. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, walls of water, excuse me. Yeah. Just hard to even imagine. Uh, <laughs> Michelle, yeah, Michelle Grossman, thank you for the latest. Sure. Obviously wishing the best for people down in Florida. Yeah. All right. Still on deck. The Bank of England bound to intervene amid a plunge in the British pound. We're live in London with just how far the central bank may actually go to reassure the market. Stay with us. Today's big number, $45.6 billion. That's the total of fraudulent unemployment insurance claims made since the beginning of the pandemic, according to the Labor Department. More than 1,000 people have been charged with crimes associated with unemployment fraud in that period. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, two housing data points due out today. The Case-Shiller Home Price Index at 9, the new home sales at 10. Home prices are expected to have slow with the surge in mortgage rates, forcing the once red-hot housing market to enter a bit of a cool-down period. This amid some potential relief for millions of renters, with monthly apartment costs falling from record highs across the U.S. for the first time in nearly two years. For more on the state of the housing market, let's bring in Brad Dillman, chief economist at Cortland. Brad, thank you for being here. Good morning. All right, so Brad, we just kind of spelled it out. Case Shiller coming out today, new home sales coming out today. What are you expecting from those reports, and what will that tell us about the direction of the housing market? Yeah, so the Case Shiller Index, you know, the last print was 18% year over year. We're going to expect that to slow. Consensus says that's going to fall to about 17.5%. I'll actually take the under on that, so we might see something in the 16% year over year, or even in the 15%. That's a slowdown, but still very strong year over year. All right. So the housing market is still relatively strong. It's just the growth is slowing down. It's not necessarily the housing market's taking a turn to the downside. That's basically what you're saying? That's right. When we think about pricing, we think about rent growth. That's definitely the case. We can look at something like new home sales. Admittedly, that's you know, a lot less attractive uh, picture. Uh, the last print there was 511,000 units on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. That's probably going to fall to about 500,000 when that data comes out today. Could be as low as 485,000. Now, to put that in context, that goes back to about 2015 or 2016. That's to say that, you know, we're, we're rewinding the clock about five, six years when it comes to the level of new home sales. All right. I want to touch on some data points that you gave me. So according to your data, uh, the U.S. Ho- uh, housing market is, is has a shortfall of about a million houses. I know some people would say two million, maybe even some people would say four million. But your data says about one million. We also have about one point seven million houses under construction. So hypothetically, once those houses get completed, obviously supply chain issues have slowed down the construction. But once they're completed, does that mean, <clears throat> excuse me, the shortfall's over? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Uh, and, and when we say houses, we should clarify, this means housing units, any type. And yes, if we're underbuilt by a million and you've got 1.7 million in the hopper, it really comes down to a question of population growth. And that's where we can look at what's happening both in terms of legal immigration and illegal immigration, just how many people are coming into the country and how we're going to have to align the amount of housing we're making with our population growth. All right. One other thing we have to talk about is rents for people that are renters. One of the things that we've seen that's been the stickiest when it comes to inflation is shelter inflation, which is basically the prices that people are paying to rent an apartment or rent a home. According to your data, rents are up 15 percent year over year. What does that mean for the housing market overall? Does that does that stop these people from eventually becoming home home buyers? Does that make multifamily construction more attractive and actually solve some of our housing issues? What's the result of that? Yeah, it definitely makes new construction more attractive, right? But I think on the flip side, you've got these, you know, uh, rate hikes, right? The Fed funds rate up to 325. Looks like the terminal rate could be in the high fours or even the low fives. That makes the cost of development go up as well. So while building has become more attractive because of rent growth, your financing costs have gone up significantly, and that makes it less attractive. As far as people moving into home ownership, you know, really, we should look at, at renting and home ownership as sort of a, a symbiotic relationship. People move throughout the life cycle. They move in terms of their housing preferences and what they want. Now, admittedly, we certainly see two, four-year fluctuations in this, but those are really more determined by mortgage rates. When mortgage rates go down, you see move-outs to own. That's to say people moving out of rented housing into owned housing, and you see that backfilled by new household formations. Right now, that's probably going to start to run in reverse as mortgage affordability declines and people who otherwise would be an owner end up renting longer. 
So, Brad, we've got to get going, but I have to ask you the question I think a lot of people are asking. Are home prices actually going to go down in the near future? I mean, with rising rates, a lot of people, as you mentioned, can't afford to buy a house unless the prices themselves go down. Well, I think we're going to see listing prices certainly adjust. Whether or not something like the Case-Shiller Index, a transaction-based index, ends up showing a negative print, I think is certainly questionable. But we'll really have to see just what happens with population growth and whether these Fed rate hikes are really going to slow down development. Again, 1.7 million housing units under construction. We're still doing starts, total housing starts at 1.5 million on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. So, when, again, when you compare that to population growth, which there really is a question mark around, we know we've probably added about 2 million people in the last two years, but there may be another 2 million people on the illegal immigration front. That's the population of Oregon, if you put that into context. So there's a lot of pieces moving at the same time, both housing construction, current construction, or current shortfall, and population growth. Yeah, a lot of moving parts there. Brad Dillman of Cortland, we appreciate the insight. Uh, two big reports coming up later today. All right, still on deck here in Worldwide Exchange. Stocks looking to stage a rebound as the selling intensifies. Carrie Firestone lays out the stocks that she's finding a few opportunities in. And a reminder, amid the market's continued volatility, be sure to sign up for the most powerful investment event of the year. CNBC's Delivering Alpha. It returns tomorrow. To register, scan the QR code on your screen or go to DeliveringAlpha.com. Ahead of that event, a look at the Delivering Alpha Investor Survey and what leading institutional investors, top strategists, and CNBC contributors are most likely to buy right now. 29% saying stocks paying high dividends, 13% saying financials, and more than 6% saying mega cap tech stocks. We're back in a moment. A Tuesday turnaround taking shape as the down the S&P look to put a stop to their five-day losing streaks. Futures are higher across the board. Overseas, the pound rising off record lows. The Bank of England vowing action as it and central banks all around the globe face the balancing act of preserving the economy while also tamping down inflation. And the wave of selling in the markets wiping away trillions in Americans' wealth. Our Robert Frank lays out just how bad it's been and what future losses could mean for the markets. It's Tuesday, September the 27th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back on this Tuesday morning. I'm Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Let's get right to how the markets and your money look right now. As we mentioned, the futures are green across the board, but off their highs of the session. Right now, the Dow looks like it could open up about 150 points higher at the open. The S&P, S&P and the Nasdaq both about a percent higher in the pre-market. We've got to continue to watch that, though. All right, moving on, looking at other parts of the market this morning, including the oil market right now. Uh, excuse me, we're going to look at the bond market first. Uh, the 10-year at 3.848 right now. As you see, it's still an inverted yield curve right now. The 2-year at 4.28 and the 5-year note still above 4%. And now to the oil market. Crude currently sitting at uh, up higher by 1% right now. WTI sitting at just below 78 a barrel. Brent crude above $85 a barrel. All right, let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories. Our Pippa Stevens, she's back with those right now. Pippa? Hey, Frank. First up, Ford is asking for a new trial after a jury in Georgia reached a $1.7 billion verdict last month in a case involving a fatal rollover accident. The trial is over a crash in 2014 that killed two people. The family sued Ford, alleging the roof design of the truck was faulty and prone to collapse in a rollover. In new court filings, Ford says it wasn't allowed to provide evidence showing the truck was safe and the roof was stronger than many of its peers. Ford is also challenging the punitive damages. 
And the Justice Department says Biogen has finalized a $900 million settlement of a whistleblower lawsuit. The suit accused the biotech company of paying doctors kickbacks to prescribe its drugs for multiple sclerosis. Biogen did not admit wrongdoing as part of the settlement. The whistleblower's lawyer says he will receive more than $260 million as part of the deal, a record for such an award. And FTX has won the auction to buy the bankrupt crypto lender Voyager Digital with a bid of roughly $1.4 billion. The majority of that is for the estimated price of all of Voyager's cryptocurrency. Voyager filed for bankruptcy in July amid the sell-off in the crypto market. It says its claims against crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital will remain with the bankruptcy estate. And Frank, this morning, crypto is on the move with Bitcoin back above 20000 All right, Pippa, thank you for that. All right, turning now to that developing story around the British pound rebounding a bid after hitting an all-time low against the dollar. The Bank of England vowing intervention in the wake of that drop are Jumana Bersetchi. She's live outside the BOE in London with much more on this story. Good morning, Jumana. What steps is the central bank weighing on this matter? Good morning, Frank. I think it's worth just highlighting that the pound at one point was about eight percentage points lower in the last couple of days. The gilt market, 10-year gilt, up about 100 basis points. So the sequencing of events is really important here. It is a confluence of factor. The reason why investors are picking on the UK right now is a combination of loose monetary policy and expansionary fiscal. So on Thursday, we had that Bank of England meeting. The bank only opted for a 50 basis point hike. The market wanted 75 basis points. That was the first negative catalyst for the pound. Friday, the UK government, the new UK government, comes in with this very expansionary fiscal plan, about £45 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts, adding to borrowing over the next couple of years, which also uh, sent investors uh, into a bit of a doom loop. They got very concerned about the prospects of the deterioration in British public finances, also started selling gilts. We were about 50 basis points lower at one point on Friday. The continuation of the moves uh, happened on Monday as well. And at some point, investors started thinking, well, because we've seen such huge moves, the Bank of England might have to do something, possibly even come in for an emergency rate hike. That didn't happen. But at 5 p.m. yesterday, the bank came out with a statement saying they are watching these market moves very, very closely, and they would not hesitate to act to bring inflation back to 2%, which means they're putting the onus on the next meeting in November, about 165 basis points now are priced in. All right, Jumana, is the Bank of England facing any criticism over how it's handling this issue? Absolutely, Frank. And this is the situation we find ourselves in because the bank has been criticized for being slow to act at a time when headline inflation is close to 10 percentage point. Wage growth is around six percentage points. The market really wanted to see more aggressive policy action out of them. It hasn't happened. But equally, we now know that the government is pursuing this very expansionary fiscal stance. It's going to add to public borrowing in the years to come. And so the bank not only have to face this headline energy uh, crisis, but also have to deal with picking up some of the economic slack from the fiscal output as well, all at a time when consumers are going to feel the pinch because of rising energy costs, rising utility bills, and add to that now that their mortgage costs are also going to go up because markets are expecting interest rates to peak at six percentage points. For many consumers out there, this is just simply unaffordable, which means that the trade-off in this case is higher interest rates, but at the cost of the economy, potentially bringing forward the timing of that recession. All right, Jumana, thank you for this. We know we're staying on, you are staying on top of this story. All right, let's stay on rising rates and the global impact. The central banks scramble to piece together policies to tamp down inflation while avoiding a hard recession. 
Joining me now is Rubila Faruqi, Chief U.S. Economist at High Frequency Economics. Rubila, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. So everybody's looking for signs about what's going on in the economy. Obviously, the yield curve inversion has been a recession indicator sometimes, but that's based on historical precedent. You say what's going on with the consumer, which is at least here in the U.S., about 70 percent of the economy. And what's going on with real wages is something we should pay more attention to. Can you explain? Definitely. I mean, what we're looking at in the U.S. economy right now is a very rapid pace of interest rate increases, right? The Fed is very committed to doing what it needs to do to bring inflation down, keep inflation expectations contained. You know, it, we're already seeing the impact on the housing sector. It has pre-trenched pretty substantially in recent months. Now what we're looking at is how is the consumer, how are households uh, really responding to these rate increases? And the consumer has been surprisingly resilient. You know, we've seen real disposable incomes decline in recent quarters. We've seen real wages that are still deeply negative. But consumers have continued to spend. However, that trend has been decelerating. We expect still positive consumer spending in the third quarter, but, you know, at a slower pace. What we're also noticing is, you know, where are the strains appearing? Consumers are, you know, relying more and more on credit card debt. Revolving credit has gone up. It's at record levels right now. And while delinquency rates are still low, we have seen a tick up, especially for lower income uh, households. And then, you know, okay. if those strains become more broad based, that will have implications not only for consumer spending, but just in general, the trajectory of the economy and growth. You want to talk a little bit more about that. I know that's something you're really highlighting. Uh, another data point you're looking at is delinquency rates, especially when it comes to lower income families. Um, one thing your research found is comes from Fed data is that household debts increased two trillion dollars uh, from Q4 of 2019, obviously pre-pandemic. What does that say potentially about the direction of the economy and the direction of the consumer? Well, that's exactly what, you know, what we're trying to figure out is how, what is the staying power of the consumer? You know, how much strain are households under because they are paying so much more for food, so much more for rents? And, you know, what we're finding is that we are seeing a deceleration, but still, you know, positive. There's, you know, we're not seeing an outright contraction. And what we're seeing on the labor market side is obviously positive, still you know, very strong job growth and, you know, restoring incomes at it, even though wages are not keeping up with inflation. But, you know, overall, there's no indication yet that the consumer side of this economy, which is what drives growth, is about to collapse. But, you know, beyond September, we don't really have a good handle on, uh, you know, what the response will be as the Fed continues to raise rates at a very rapid pace. And it actually wants to soften the labor market. So, you know, that's something that uh, we are really trying to you know, focus on to see what's going to happen on, on, in coming quarters. So in recent days, we heard Fed officials come out, um, basically say that, you know, their plan to, to cut inflation may lead to job losses. It may lead to yeah. some pretty dramatic economic slowdowns. What's your base case for the markets if the Fed stays on this path? The uh, continued volatility. I mean, the Fed is very clear. And, you know, if the, if the markets didn't get the message at Jackson Hole, they certainly got it last week, you know, because we saw in the dot plot, not only are they going to raise rates and they're going to continue to do so at a rapid pace, but they're going to keep rates higher for longer because, you know, that is what is needed. They want to make sure that infl they don't just uh, get to a point where inflation is lower. They want to make sure that inflation stays lower. So I think this just means a lot of volatility because we are moving from a very low interest rate environment to a new, you know, sort of pre-financial crisis type of environment where rates are going to be higher and the Fed is, and other central banks certainly not about to back off. 
All right, Rabila Farouk, we appreciate the insight. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you. All right, coming up on Worldwide Exchange, your morning RBI and a bright spot in these choppy markets, the names that have been quietly grinding out wins. But first, as we head to break, more of your morning's top stories, European natural gas prices ticking up amid new worries around the Nord Stream pipeline. Sweden and Denmark are investigating leaks in both Nord Stream gas pipelines with Germany, reporting a drop in pressure in the Nord Stream 1 line overnight. Eight states have filed action against the crypto lending platform Nexo Group. Regulators say they're targeting the firm over its unregistered interest-bearing crypto product and its failure to register it as a security. And Christie's is getting into the sneaker and streetwear business. The auction house announcing its Department X will will sell rare collectibles across music, fashion, art, and sports history. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. All right, time now for something random but interesting. For that, we send it out to Brian Sullivan. It is time for your morning RBI. And today, let's talk about a little sunshine in the stock market. Yes, sunshine. Because as bad as it's been, and it's been bad, not every company is being sold off. In fact, there's been a bunch of quiet winners. And many of them are names that should not be that quiet to you, Worldwide Exchange viewer, because we have talked about them in the past. It has to do with our Friday insider buying segment. Well, we ran through the data and checked this out. Since we began tracking the insider buys, we have brought 217 different stocks to you that have shown significant insider buying that past week. Now, we don't just track the stocks. We also track how many times each appears on the list because many stocks have popped up two or more times. We'll get to more on that in a second. But listen to this. Now, this quarter, since July 1st, There are actually 86 stocks of the 217 names that we've brought to you that are higher in the market. That's a 39% up rate. Compare that to just 16% of stocks in the Dow being higher this quarter. It's also a percent or two higher than the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 as well. But here's where it also gets really random but interesting. A full 20% the insider buying stocks that we have brought to you are up more than 10% this quarter. That is more than double the percent of double-digit gains inside the S&P 500 in the same time. Some of the biggest jumps this quarter, Kano Health, it may get bought. Avidel Pharmaceuticals, good news about a narcolepsy drug. Calix, it's a software company. Cassava Sciences, okay, note, be careful here. The SEC's been poking around that company, and the stock took a big hit on Friday. And also Gossamer Biotech, another, of course, biosciences company. And here's an extra piece of info you may want to kind of, you know, mentally file away. There have been a few companies whose insiders have shown up at least three times on our weekly list of insider buyers. Not many, but here they are. Of the 217, Aon, Cody, Crown Castle, General Motors, Intel, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Just seven stocks out of 217 popping up three times on our list. Of course, This does not mean these stocks are going to go up. There's no guarantees of anything. But in this market, any little edge you may be able to find is worth something, right? And the insiders certainly saw something interesting in their insider buy. Random and hopefully interesting for you. All right, Brian with his morning RBI. All right, let's stick with the markets. The selling that we've seen over the course of September, wiping vast amounts of wealth from Americans' finances. Our Robert Frank joins us now with more on just how much has been lost here, Robert. A lot of people looking at their 401ks. That's right, Frank. In addition to 401ks, you've got family offices, really shareholders across the board losing trillions of dollars in wealth 
from these overall market declines. New data from the Federal Reserve showing that the value of America's holdings of corporate equities and mutual fund shares fell by $9.2 trillion as of July 1st. Now, the decline since then probably bring it close to that $10 trillion mark. The top has, of course, lost the most since they own the most stocks. The top 10% of Americans saw their wealth drop by over $8 trillion this year. The top 1% losing $5 trillion in stock wealth. That's a drop of about 20%. Rising home prices have helped a bit, but not nearly enough to offset the stock wealth drop. Real estate holdings up $3 trillion this year. It's about less than a third of the total losses in the stock market. Now, the question is, when this negative wealth effect from stocks starts to affect the consumer spending of the wealthy, the total wealth of the top 10% is still up $9 trillion since 2019 before the pandemic. So, Frank, that financial cushion for this top group is very large, but with these market declines, it is shrinking fast. All right, so Robert, I, my, it kind of caught my ear. You talked about the wealthiest people obviously losing the most because they have the most to lose, but is there any sign yet that these market losses have affected the spending of the wealthiest people? Not yet, Frank. When you look at the luxury space, when you look at travel, when you look at even collectibles like art, wine, cars, there really hasn't been any noticeable slowdown. But, you know, when you look at luxury spending or spending from the top, it tends to shut down very quickly, kind of like a light switch. It's not as gradual as the overall economy. So if we start to see unemployment start to tick up, if we start to see a real recession, that spending at the top could shut off quickly. But we're not there yet. Yeah, Christy's getting into the streetwear business. We just did that story that's on your beat a little earlier. So that might be a sign that they don't see anybody yeah. slowing down their spending, at least. That's right. Our Robert Frank on the luxury yeah. beat and wealth beat, as always. Great to have you on. All right, on deck, stocks looking to mount a turnaround following five days of selling. Carrie Firestone is standing by with the stocks that are high on her shopping list. But first, throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates and our contributors as we had to break, here is Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist, Gina Sanchez. The benefits of being Hispanic is that it is a naturally inclusive uh, culture. You can come from many different racial backgrounds um, and be classed as Hispanic. Um, the challenge to that is that it, it can, can create uh, divisions and a lack of cohesion within the community. And so the Hispanic voice um, sometimes comes out fractured or doesn't come out as strong in one direction or another because it represents so many people. So I think as a culture and as a community, we have to think about how we're going to channel um, our voice and what we're going to channel it toward uh, so that we can have the maximum impact. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A busy day ahead for traders, including several economic reports of note. We've got August Durable Goods at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, the July S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index at 9, and August New Home Sales and September Consumer Confidence, both out at 10 a.m. We'll also be watching for remarks from President Biden today about lowering health care costs, as well as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who will be traveling to North Carolina to highlight climate investments as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And a slew of speeches by Federal Reserve leaders ahead, starting with Chairman Jerome Powell at 7.30 a.m. Eastern. 
Obviously, the market's going to watch that closely, followed by San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly at 835 and St. Louis Fed President James Bullard at 955. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, he wraps things up at 1 p.m. Now to some of this morning's top stories. Hurricane Ian's impact already being felt in the energy space. BP and Chevron announcing they have shut in production at offshore oil platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. The Category 2 storm, which is expected to intensify in the coming days, is the first this year to disrupt oil and gas production in the Gulf. Meanwhile, Occidental Petroleum and Hess say they're implementing measures for facilities in the region. <coughs> Excuse me. Airports across the U.S. grappling with a wave of protests by workers, cashiers, baristas. <coughs> Excuse me again. <coughs> Bartenders and lounge attendants at the San Francisco International Airport. They launched an open-ended strike yesterday over staffing levels and wages. <coughs> And flight attendants at United and Southwest Airlines are expected to demonstrate at 21 airports around the U.S., as well as in London today, to draw attention to workplace problems made worse by understaffing. While neither of the strikes are expected to disrupt air travel this week, they're the latest signs of upheaval in the nation's transportation sector. And Chicago Fed President Charles Evans defending the central bank's recent string of rate hikes. Speaking with our colleagues over in Europe, Evans was pressed on whether the central bank needs to carry out another 75 or even a full pay point basis uh, rate, rate hike. Excuse me, a little something caught in my throat. <coughs> All right, Marcus looking to bounce back and put a stop to the September slide. Futures right now in the green. Right now the, door look, the Dow looks like it could open up about 150 points higher. Let's bring in Carrie Firestone, the chairman and CEO of Arius Asset Management. She is also a CNBC contributor. Carrie, thank you for being here, and good morning. Hi, Frank. So, Carrie, I know you're watching the moves in the market. Obviously, we tested those June lows, and you're saying we need to look at a new trading range for the market and maybe look at a new bottom, possibly. Well, we've been saying for some time that the market was trading in a range. Uh, the bottom of the range is... is one that we went through yesterday, 3666. So we're a little bit below that. I think that the market's going to bounce today. Uh, the market doesn't care about hard numbers like that. Top of the range is back up, you know, over 4,300 uh, where we have been. But I think that the news from the Fed and their determination means that the market could go a little lower. On the other hand, at this point, we're down 24% from where we were at the beginning of the year. That discounts a lot of bad news. And so we still think that there's a good chance that we can have a rally here. We're at you know, 16 times 2023 earnings, 15 times 2024 earnings. And again, there are a lot of stocks that have had their own uh, recession and bear market for months and months now, uh, if not over a year. And that's part of the reason that we we are feeling more optimistic about where stocks can go at this point. All right, Carrie, we have uh, PCE coming out later this week. Obviously, that's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. We know the direction the Fed's planning to go to. The question is whether PCE will change their mind at all. A lot of people don't think so. But will a better than expected PCE report change the mind of the market and make people perhaps more bullish? Oh, definitely. We know that if it's worse, the market's not going to be happy. I mean, look what happened uh, when we were at 8.3% versus 8.1%. I mean, it was an incredible. The market's lost, I think, 10% of its value. So anything better, I think, is uh, to some extent a requirement for the market to hold in here. 
and we believe that they'll there will be some you know improvement in the numbers. Uh, I think people are looking for something better than 6.3. Hopefully, it's 6.1 or 6.0. We know that oil prices have gone down, and there is some effect that the housing market is seeing. There's not a lot of houses that are moving. We're going to know more about housing this week, and we'll see something about the price level. But if houses don't move at a certain point, the sellers do lower their selling price if they really need to move that house off the market. So there should be improvement there. There's been commodity prices other than oil that have gone down. Shipping costs have gone down. There's been more discounting at retail. So there should be an effect. And the Fed definitely has raised rates enough. So people are feeling the pain in the housing market on mortgages and on loans for cars and large appliances. So yes, there should be some effect. And the market today would be anticipating that, we, we think. All right, Kara, before we let you go, we got to get to your stock picks. Let's start off with PayPal. What makes you so, uh, as, has PayPal as one of the stocks that you want to buy right now? Yeah, exactly. So PayPal is one of the worst performing names if you look over the last year and a half in the S&P. I mean, it's really fallen tremendously, uh, over 70%. Now, that is because it was a huge beneficiary during COVID. Now it's selling for 17 times forward earnings. There's a lot of cost control. There's an activist investor in that Elliott management. And, you know, we believe that this is a time that you can look for PayPal to really accelerate the sales growth. They have said so in the past call. Sales growth going uh, forward over the next year should be mid-teens, and it, this is an attractive stock right here on a cash flow basis. It's a value stock, even though it's been a, a growth name for uh, you know the past five years. All right, almost out of town, out of time. But if you want to give us one or two more of your picks, uh, one that caught my ear was uh, O'Reilly is one of your picks. Yeah, O'Reilly has held up very well. It's been a very good stock this year. People have not bought as many new cars because they haven't been available. They haven't even bought used cars. So they fixed up their old car. And O'Reilly benefits from that because that's the business they're in. And they've been able to increase market share. Their stores have been busy on the same store basis. And this is a name that, you know, we think people feel comfortable with in an unsure environment. All right, Carrie Firestone, we have to leave the conversation there. We appreciate you being here. All right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Dow right now up almost 200 points in the pre-market. We're going to toss things over to Squawk Box coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.